Welcome, and thank you for joining me on episode 6 of Galaxy Rise. This is the April 2019th edition of the show, and I'm your host, Dustin Ruoff. In like a lion and out like a lamb has always seemed like a pretty straightforward enough proverb. When March starts, it's still winter, and by the end of the month, spring has sprung. True, in many climates, the weather hasn't really reached the lamb stage by the end of the month. It's more like an irradiated honey badger. One origin of the notion refers to the astrological significance of Leo and Aries at this time. Whatever it is, all I can say is that I'm glad that spring is finally here. For many reasons, March turned out a bit of a mess for me, and many plans that I had didn't really work out as I'd hoped, one of which being the kids' 4-H science club I was co-organizer of. The key word there is was. There were many factors working against me feeling confident with that situation. Both my own personal and some shared interpersonal challenges cropped up, and at a best interest for all involved, especially me, I had to step down. Fortunately, I left the organization on good terms, and I've actually been invited to start a four to six week astronomy series out of the Maine County office, separate from the club that I was at. I've yet to agree to this, as it's taken me a few weeks here to recalibrate, but it's in a nice dark area, and the vibe of the program would be super chill. I'm really looking forward to this year, and refining my focus as a science communicator and educator. I know now that by spreading myself too thin, I'm risking not only letting myself down, but others who I've made promises to. I don't want to do that again, and I am regrouping and organizing for a new path. That being said, winter has been holding on here where I live, and the days and nights have been consistently windy and cold, with temps finally warming up well above freezing during the later time of March. This past week, we actually had one night where the temperature stayed well into the 50 degree Fahrenheit range. Warmer evenings mean longer days, and this means stargazing will start later and later as we head towards summer. But for me, this is just fine. I'm still working on expanding my kit, and I just bought a new eyepiece and a smartphone camera bracket. I need to find my sweet dark spot for stargazing still, and I also need to get comfortable with the changing seasonal skies. Thomas Edison is quoted as saying, Negative results are just what I want. They're just as valuable to me as positive results. I can never find the thing that does the job best until I find the ones that don't. I figure this is a good assessment of where I'm at. Just trying to things and find out what works and what doesn't. Anyhow, there's been a ton of activity out there in space, astronomy, and electronic music land. And this past month, I've met a ton of great psychomers, scientists, astrophotographers, musicians alike. As always, thanks for listening. And please do contact me with any questions or comments about the show. That's the artist, How I Became Invisible, with their track, Balance, 
It's off the winter 2019 compilation from the blog and tape label I Heart Noise. The band is from Philadelphia and the label from Boston. You can buy this 42-song compilation featuring a large range of styles over at iheartnoise.bandcamp.com. Welcome to Launch Report. This month, we'll check out recent space and aerospace-related news, as well as review the recent and upcoming rocket launch schedules. On Thursday, March 14th, the Soyuz MS-12 spacecraft launched at 3.15 Eastern Time from Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan, with ISS Expedition 59 crew members Nick Haig, Christina Koch, both of NASA, and along with Alexei Ovchinin of Roscosmos. Haig, Koch, and Ovchinin will spend six and a half months living aboard the International Space Station. Expedition 59 officially began at the time of docking when the spacecraft arrived at 9.01 p.m. after a four-orbit, six-hour journey. They have joined Anne McLean of NASA, David St. Jocks of the Canadian Space Agency, and Expedition 59 Commander Oleg Konenko of Roscosmos. The crew members will spend more than six months conducting about 250 science investigations in the fields of biology, earth science, human research, physical sciences, and technology development. On March 22nd and 29th, pairs of spacewalkers replaced nickel-hydrogen batteries with newer, more powerful lithium-ion batteries for power channels on one pair of this station's solar arrays. On April 8th, spacewalkers will lay out jumper cables between the Unity module and the midpoint of the station's backbone to establish a redundant power path to the Canadian-built robotic arm known as Canadarm2 and enhance computer network capabilities. The crew is also scheduled to be on board during test flights of NASA's commercial crew program, which will return human spaceflight launches for space station's missions to the U.S. soil. McLean, St. Jacques, and Konenko are scheduled to remain on board the station until June, while Haig, Koch, and Ovchinen are set to return to Earth earlier this fall. Haig and Ovchinen have now completed a journey to the space station that initially began in October 11th, when a booster separation problem with their Soyuz rocket's first stage triggered an abort two minutes after launch, resulting in a safe return to the Earth. This is Avchinen's third flight to space and the second for Haig, and it's the first for Koch. At a March 12th meeting, the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, or JAXA, and Toyota Motor Corporation announced their continued commitment to collaborate in support of international space exploration. As a first step, they agreed to accelerate their ongoing joint study of a man-pressurized rover that employs fuel cell technologies. Such fuel cell technology is crucial for human exploration activities on the lunar surface. Even with the limited amount of energy that could be transported to the moon, the rover would have a total lunar surface cruising range of more than 10,000 kilometers. JAXA President Hiroshi Yakuma had this to say. At JAXA, we are pursuing international coordination and technological studies towards Japan's participation in international space exploration. We aim to contribute through leading Japanese technologies that can potentially generate spin-off benefits. Having Toyota join us in the challenge of international space exploration greatly strengthens our confidence. Manned rovers with pressurized cabins are an element that will play an important role in full-fledged exploration and the use of the lunar surface. JAXA Vice President Koichi Wakata noted that they're aiming at launching a rover into space around 2029. Lunar gravity is one-sixth that of Earth. Meanwhile, the moon has a complex terrain with craters, cliffs, and hills. Moreover, it is exposed to radiation and temperature conditions that are much harsher than those on Earth, as well as ultra-high vacuum environment. For wide-ranging human exploration on the moon, a pressurized rover that can travel more than 10,000 kilometers in such environments is a necessity. Toyota's space mobility concepts meet such mission criteria. Toyota and JAXA have been jointly studying the concept of a man-pressurized rover since May of 2018. Hydrogen-oxygen fuel cells, when in action, emit only water. They can provide a lot of energy, making them especially ideal for use in lunar and planetary exploration. Toyota says its rover is roughly the size of two small shuttle buses, and it measures roughly 19 feet long and 17 feet wide, and 12 feet tall. The rover has 42 cubic feet of interior space, enough for two astronaut world's first and largest cooperative program in space and technology. And here I thought February was an extremely light month for launches, and then came March. 
On March 2nd, SpaceX launched a Falcon 9 rocket with the Crew Dragon Demo-1 spacecraft on an uncrewed test flight to the International Space Station. This milestone commercial crew-rated spacecraft successfully docked at the ISS and eventually returned to Earth, splashing down off the Florida coast a week later. March 9th, China launched the Long March 3B rocket, sending the ChinaSat 6C communications satellite to orbit. NASA astronauts Nick Cage, Christina Hammack-Koch, and Alexei Ovchinin of the Russian Space Agency launched on March 14th from the Baikonur Cosmodrome. United Launch Alliance launched its Delta IV rocket from the Cape Canaveral on March 15th, delivering the 10th U.S. military wideband global SATCOM spacecraft to orbit. On March 21st, Arian Space launched a Vega rocket, designated VV-14 with the Prisma satellite for the Italian Space Agency. On March 27th, the commercial Chinese space company OneSpace failed to launch its OSM-1 rocket. The company was positioned to be the first private Chinese company to launch a spacecraft to orbit. Amateur footage from the site shows apparent loss of control of the rocket shortly after its first stage separation one minute into launch. March 28th, the Rocket Lab Electron rocket launched a DARPA and USDOD R3D2 spacecraft from the Launch Complex 1 on the Mahai Peninsula in New Zealand. No joke, on April 1st, India's PolarSat launch vehicle, or PSLV, C-45, successfully sent the India's government's EMI satellite into orbit. The PSLV flew in a new configuration with four strap-on solid rocket boosters. On April 4th, Russian government Soyuz rocket will launch the 72nd Progress cargo delivery ship to the International Space Station. Also on the 4th, Arian Space Soyuz rocket, designated VS-22, will launch on mission from the Guiana Space Center. The Soyuz will carry the fifth set of four satellites for O3B networks. On April 7th, for the second time ever, a SpaceX Falcon Heavy rocket will launch, sending an Arabsat 6A communications satellite to orbit. If you watch one launch this month, make sure it's this one. It's scheduled between 6.36 and 8.35 p.m. Eastern Time. There could be a triple reusable booster landing for this one. On April 17th, the Northrop Grumman Antares rocket will launch the 12th Cygnus cargo freighter to the International Space Station. On April 25th, the SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket will launch the 19th Dragon cargo spacecraft to the International Space Station. The track is called Tranquility off the album Stream by the artist Hark Madley. This is an amazingly spacey album, which I highly recommend you check out fully. This is the second track off the 2019 release. Los Angeles-based producer and composer Mark Hadley indeed conjures a lush atmosphere, rich in subtlety and warmth. You can buy this over at harkmadley.bandcamp.com. 
This month on The Hubble Moment, we'll learn about the past and current implications of Edwin Hubble's own amazing discoveries. Edwin Hubble was born on November 20th, 1889, and he died September 28th, 1953. He played a crucial role in establishing the fields of extragalactic astronomy and observational cosmology, and he is regarded as one of the most important astronomers of all time. Hubble discovered many objects previously thought to be clouds of dust and gas classified as nebula, and they were actually galaxies beyond the Milky Way. He used the strong direct relationship between classical Cepheid variables, luminosity, and pulsation period for scaling galactic and extragalactic distances. A Cepheid variable is a type of star that pulsates radially, varying in both diameter and temperature and producing changes in brightness with a well-defined stable period and amplitude. This robust characteristic of classical Cephids was discovered in 1908 by Henrietta Swan Leavitt after studying thousands of variable stars in the Magellanic Clouds. The term Cephid originates from Delta Cephi in the constellation Cepheus, identified by John Goodrich in 1784, the first of its type to be identified. Hubble provided evidence that the recessional velocity of galaxies increases with the distance from Earth, a property now known as Hubble's Law, despite the fact that it had been both proposed and demonstrated observationally two years earlier by George Lemaitre. This meant the greater the distance between any two galaxies, the greater their relative speed of separation. Hubble's Law is considered the first observational basis for the expansion of the universe, and today serves as one of the pieces of evidence most often cited in support of the Big Bang model. The motion of astronomical objects due solely to this expansion is known as the Hubble Flow. Although widely attributed to Edwin Hubble, the law was first derived from the general relativity equations in 1922 by Alexander Friedman. Friedman published a set of equations, now known as the Friedman equations, showing that the universe might expand and presenting the expansion speed if this was the case. Then George Lemaitre, in 1927's article, proposed the expansion of the universe and suggested an estimated value of the rate of expansion, which he was then corrected by Hubble and became known as the Hubble constant. The Hubble-Lemaitre's law implies that the universe is expanding. A decade before, the astronomer Vesto Slipher had provided the first evidence that the light from many of these nebula was strongly redshifted, indicative of high recession velocities. In a 2017 paper called Cosmology at a Crossroads, Tension with the Hubble Constant up on archive.org, that's A-R-X-I-V.org, Dr. Wendy L. Friedman, professor in astronomy and astrophysics of the University of Chicago writes, Hubble originally measured the value of the Hubble constant at 500 kilometers per second per megaparsec. Later revisions led this range to be down between 50 and 100. Resolution at this discrepancy ultimately required the ability to measure accurate distances, a new generation of digital detectors, and the launch of the Hubble Space Telescope. As part of the Hubble Key Project, Friedman measured the value of the Hubble constant to be 72 kilometers per second per megaparsec. Over the past 15 years, measurements in the fluctuations in the temperature of the remnant radiation from the Big Bang have provided a relatively new means of estimating the value of the Hubble constant. This very different approach has led us to interesting crossroads, yielding the lower-derived value of the Hubble constant. If this discrepancy persists in the face of newer and higher precision and accurate data, it might be signaling that there is new physics to be discovered beyond the current standard model of cosmology. Well, Dr. Friedman's predictions certainly played out pretty well. In 2018, ESA released the final data from the Planck Space Telescope, which mapped the Cosmic Microwave Background, or CMB, at microwave and infrared frequencies between 2009 and 2013. The Cosmic Microwave Background is what scientists believe to be the remnant radiation from the Big Bang. The data revealed is that the Hubble constant determined by the data Planck captured of this ancient 13 billion year old radiation was 67.66 kilometers per second per megaparsec. Eager to correlate the new findings, a group of astronomers used the Hubble Space Telescope in 2018 and 2019 to again look at the more local and more recently formed Cepheid variables in the Large Magellanic Cloud. On March 18th, a new paper released from the team on archive.org confirmed the average of 74 kilometers per second per megaparsec. 
With multiple independent checks now established at both ends of cosmic history, this Hubble constant tension between the early and late universe, as it is widely known, may be interpreted as evidence for new cosmological features such as exotic dark energy, a new relativistic particle, dark matter radiation, or neutrino-neutrino interactions, dark matter decay, or a small curvature, each producing different sized shifts. Edwin Hubble's research continues in the new generation of astrophysicists, and his legacy continues with the Hubble Space Telescope playing such a crucial role in our understanding of the universe. It's a new single release called Number 5 is Alive from the prolific soundtrack composer and multi-instrumentalist David Joseph Wesley under his Parsec project name. Wesley is an accomplished catalog in film, TV, and video game scores and came to my attention with the release of his new theme song for the Astronomy Cast podcast. He's also recorded music for NASA's 2017 solar eclipse events and the soundtrack to Fox's Firefly video game. You can buy this track and more over at parsecretro.bandcamp.com and davidjosephwesley.bandcamp.com. This month on Exclusively Exos, I'm happy to announce that the number of exoplanets hit the 4,000 mark, according to the Extrasolar Planets Encyclopedia, run by the Observatory of Paris. Dr. Francois Roques, from the Observatory, is on the scientific board of the Encyclopedia. Dr. Roques says it still remains difficult to distinguish between the type of stars known as brown dwarfs and giant planets. The great news is, is that we've shifted from starry sky to a planetary sky, as there are many more planets than stars. And also, the planetary systems have great diversity in structure, with planets orbiting zero, one, two, or three stars, or more planets. 4,000 is just a number, as the frontier of the planet domain is uncertain, she says. The brown dwarfs have been defined by the International Astronomical Union as small stars, but in fact, some of them are big planets. Our database collects objects under 60 Jupiter masses and contains a mix of planetary brown dwarfs, formed in a protoplanetary disk around a star, and starry brown dwarfs, formed by collapse of interstellar clouds. The only way to ensure the difference is to access its internal structure, which is difficult and impossible for us to do now. Dr. Roque explained, For the field of exoplanet exploration, we're going from a discovery projects to exploration projects for a better understanding of the structure, formation, atmosphere, and, of course, habitability of exoplanets. The exoplanet.eu website is quite robust, it features searchable and sortable catalog of now 4,022 planets and around 3,004 systems. 
you could sort and review basic details such as planet name, mass, radius, orbital period, distance from star, and several other properties. Each exoplanet record also profiles the host star, which also provides position in the night sky and the distance from Earth. The site also features a really cool interactive infographic depicting the discovered planets in a circular visualization, with our sun being in the middle, and each planet being distributed radially from the center based on its distance from the sun. Then there are six sizes of planet types depicted by circles from small to large. There's Mini-Earth, Earth, Super-Earth, Mini-Neptune, Neptune, and Jupiter. These are then able to be selected and deselected to hide or display, meaning you can see the relative concentrations of these planet sizes around our sun by distance and size. It's pretty crazy. You can also layer in a color filling for each planet that varies across the spectrum and changes based on selecting planet parameters, including orbital period, mass, radius, semi-major axis, year of discovery, and irradiation compared to Earth, but also by the host star parameters, including age, declination, effective temperature, mass, and the apparent magnitude of the host star. To check this out, go to exoplanet.eu and look for the prominent View the Planets Around Us feature on their homepage. On March 11th, ESA confirmed that its Kiops spacecraft is ready to fly. Kiops, the characterizing exoplanet satellite, is the first mission dedicated to searching for extraplanetary transits by performing ultra-high precision photometry on bright stars known to host planets. The mission's main science goals are to measure the bulk density of super-Earths and Neptunes orbiting bright stars and provide suitable targets for future in-depth characterization studies of exoplanets in these mass and size ranges. KEOPS is an ESA mission implemented in partnership with Switzerland through the Swiss Space Office. The University of Bern leads a consortium of 11 ESA member states contributing to the mission and represented in the KEOPS science team. By February 2019, the results of over five years of manufacturing and testing were available. Following final preparation activities and such fine-tuning, KEOPS will be stored in Madrid for a few months before it's shipped out to the launch site in Cora, French Guiana. Meanwhile, it's still a very busy time, even as the spacecraft rests in storage. A simulation campaign will start the first half of April to prepare the teams that will operate and control the satellite for in-flight operations. KEOPS paves the way for the next generation of ESA exoplanet satellites with two further missions, Plato and Ariel, planned for the next decade to tackle different aspects of the evolving field of exoplanet science. Plato, the Planetary Transits Oscillations of STARS mission, is a next-generation planet hunter with the emphasis on properties of rocky planets in orbits in the habitable zone, where liquid water can exist on a planet's surface, around sun-like stars. It will also investigate seismic activity in stars, which will enable precise characterization of that planet's host star, including its age, providing insight into the age and evolutionary state of the planet system. Ariel, the Atmospheric Remote Sensing Infrared Exoplanet Large Survey Mission, will take exoplanet characterization one step further, performing a chemical census of large and diverse sample of exoplanets by analyzing their atmospheres. This will enable the study of exoplanets both as individuals and, importantly, as populations in greater detail.
from the label A Strangely Isolated Place, that's the artist James Bernard off a brand new release called At Water with the track End of an Era. The album was performed live during a 2018 Modular on the Spot event held in Los Angeles' North Atwater Park. The beautiful sounds were created with Moog Mother 32, custom-built filters, and various Eurorack modular sequencers, modules, and effects. Buy this and many other excellent releases over at a strangely isolated place.bandcamp.com. Welcome to Mission Control. First up, we'll talk about why the Mars InSight lander's mole probe had deposits digging. The lander said its heat probe, called the Heat and Physics Property Package, or HP-3, on the Martian surface on February 12th. The HP-3 is a probe designed to dig up to 16 feet, about 5 meters, below the surface and measure heat coming from the inside of the planet. After beginning to hammer itself into the soil on Thursday, February 28th, the 16-inch probe part of the instrument got about three-fourths of the way out of its housing structure before stopping. No significant progress was seen after a second bout of hammering on Saturday, March 2nd. Data suggests the probe, known as a mole, is at a 15-degree tilt. Scientists suspect it hit a rock or some gravel. The team had hoped there would be relatively few rocks below the ground, given how few appear on the surface beside the lander. Even so, the mole is designed to push small rocks aside and wend its way around them. Data shows that the probe itself continues to function as expected. After heating by about 18 degrees Fahrenheit, it measures how quickly that heat dissipates in the soil. This property, known as thermal conductivity, helps calibrate sensors embedded in the tether trailing from behind the mole. Once the mole is deep enough, these tether sensors can measure Mars's natural heat coming from inside the planet, which is generated by radioactive material decaying and leftover energy from Mars's formation. The team conducted further heating tests to measure the thermal conductivity of the upper surface. They used a radiometer on InSight's deck to measure temperature changes on the surface. Mars's moon Phobos passed in front of the sun several times in late March. Like a cloud passing overhead, the eclipse darkened and cooled the ground around InSight. More imaging and testing are planned to further study InSight's heat probe. That testing includes a new round of hammering. Many ideas for freeing up the mole are being considered all of which will require at least several more weeks of careful analysis. There's still little clarity as to whether the mole is being blocked by a single rock or a layer of gravel. There's also the possibility the probe or its cable might get stuck on something inside the instrument's protective housing. Scientists had hoped to get the probe in the ground within a few months of InSight's landing. But so long as it eventually digs up to at least 10 feet, they can still get useful data about the Martian interior, regardless of when that happens. The team plans to conduct a 10 to 15 minute hammering test to allow InSight's seismometer to listen to the mole striking whatever obstacle it has hit, offering possible clues as to what might be blocking it. Meanwhile, the camera on InSight's robotic arm will photograph the mole's support structure in the hopes of catching any possible motion induced by the mole during hammering. In April, a replica of HP-3 will be shipped to NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. That will allow JPL's team to begin testing in concert with DLR engineers working with similar models in Bremen, Germany. Two tough, resilient NASA spacecraft have been orbiting the Earth for the past six and a half years, flying repeatedly through a hazardous zone of charged particles around the planet called the Van Allen radiation belts. The twin Van Allen probes, launched in August 2012, have confirmed many scientific theories and revealed new structures and processes at work in these dynamic regions. On February 12th, one of the probes began a series of orbit descent maneuvers to bring its closest point of orbit, called Perigree, to just under 190 miles closer to Earth. This will bring the Perigree from about 375 miles to about 190, a change that will position the spacecraft for an eventual re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere in about 15 years' time. The other of the two Van Allen probes followed suit in March. In order for the Van Allen probes to have controlled re-entry within a reasonable amount of time, we need to lower the Perigree, says Nelly Masavi, project manager for the Van Allen probes at John Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, who designed and controlled the twin crafts. At the new altitude, Aerodynamic drag will bring the satellites and eventually burn them up in the atmosphere. Our mission is to obtain great science data and to also ensure that we prevent more space debris so the next generation will have the opportunity to explore space as well. During their last years of life, the Van Allen probes will continue to gather data on Earth's dynamic radiation belts, and their new, lower passes through the Earth's atmosphere will also provide new insight to how oxygen in Earth's upper atmosphere can degrade satellite instruments 
information that could help design more resilient satellites in the future. This month, ESA revealed details about the upcoming asteroid-hunting HERA mission, launching in 2023. The mission is targeting the tiny Didymos asteroid pair and has inherited its main imager from NASA's Dawn mission to the largest asteroids of Vesta and Ceres. HERA is currently the subject of a detailed design work ahead of being presented to Europe's space ministers at Space 19 Plus Ministerial Council at the end of this year and is still targeting for launch in 2023. The spacecraft will survey a tiny 160-meter diameter moon of the 780-meter diameter Didymos asteroid following a pioneering planetary defense experiment. The asteroid framing camera that Hera will use to navigate through space and study its targeted double asteroids is already ready and built. Two of these cameras, Hera will carry a pair for redundancy, are sitting in protective nitrogen gas inside a clean room in Göttingen, Germany. The AFC is designed specifically for NASA's Dawn mission and the two largest bodies of the asteroid belt, Vesta and Ceres, explains Holger Six of the Max Planck Institute for Solar System Research. There was no other camera aboard the spacecraft, so the AFC had a mission-critical role being employed for both navigation and scientific investigation. The AFC worked perfectly throughout Dawn's 11-year lifetime. Before Dawn finally ended in November of 2018, the spacecraft came as close as 30 kilometers from the surface of Ceres and returned spectacular views of the striking bright spots. Equipped with seven spectral filters, from the visible to the near-infrared, the camera was able to gather a wide array of spectral information on all aspects of the asteroid studied. An eighth clear filter was used when AFC was employed for navigation purposes and for broadband surface science. The Max Planck Institute for Solar System Research also built the Rosetta Comet Chaser's main OSIRIS science imager, so it has plenty of experience in imaging distant planetoids up close. These bodies would be dark like charcoal to the human eye, so it takes highly sensitive detectors and carefully judged exposure times to see what we see. HERA is part of the large international endeavor called the Asteroid Impact and Deflection Assessment, or ADA mission. ADA plans to include two separate independent spacecraft to be sent to Didymos. The NASA Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART spacecraft, is an asteroid impactor. The mission is led by John Hopkins APL, and then HERA will follow up as a reconnaissance craft sent by ESA. That is Burial Grid right there, off their brand new release, My Body Dissolves As I Watch It Dissolve. The track is an unwilling spectator. It's a self-released album by musician Adam Michael Kozak, and is a collection of musical explorations of the winding down of life. You can buy this and several other of the band's releases over at burialgrid.bandcamp.com. 
This month on Unlikely Encounters, we're beginning a celebration of the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 lunar landing. In July 1969, the crew of Apollo 11 radioed Mission Command in Houston to ask about a curious object they saw on their third day in space. Do you have any idea where the S-1VB is respect to us? Commander Neil Armstrong asked, referring to the third stage of the Saturn V rocket that was jettisoned earlier in the flight. Mission Control had an answer about three minutes later, according to a NASA radio transcript of the mission. Apollo 11, Houston, the command replied, The S-1VB is about 6,000 nautical miles from you now. Over. That satisfied Armstrong, who said 12 seconds later, Okay, thank you. The seemingly innocuous exchange has become a touchstone for UFO sighting enthusiasts and alien truthers. In April 2018, a British tabloid, the Daily Star, reported that Buzz Aldrin, the second astronaut to set foot on the moon, believed that the crew saw an extraterrestrial spacecraft at this moment, and that they have a lie detector test to prove it. The tabloid's story focused on vocal analysis conducted by an Ohio-based Institute of Bioacoustic Biology and Sound Health, a nonprofit institution that founder Sherry Edwards is said to develop a lie detection program that can evaluate how truthful or confident someone feels about a subject that they're talking about. Edwards told The Post that she used Aldrin's interview from a 2006 Discovery Science made-for-TV documentary, Apollo 11, The Untold Story, to analyze Aldrin's remarks. There was something out there that was close enough to be observed, and what could it be? Aldrin recounted about the incident, adding that crew member Michael Collins saw ellipses on the L-shaped object when viewed through a telescope. That didn't tell us very much, he said. Aldrin noted that the moment called for restraint from theorizing what the object might be during one of the most scrutinized missions in human history. Who knows what somebody would have demanded that we turn back because of, aliens or whatever the reason is, he said on the program. The crew decided to move on and mention it later in a mission debrief, Aldrin added. In her analysis, Edwards says, Aldrin believes what he is saying emotionally, but has doubts intellectually. His ego, on a highly spiritual level, is solidly involved. He has a firm belief in what he saw, but logical awareness that he cannot explain what he saw. Therefore, he thinks he should be doubted. His gut-level emotions and system of integrity is well-grounded, with the exception that he has some issues around people asking too much of him and expecting him to take care of things for them. For the benefit of the people, he wants his statements about his seeing a UFO to be believed. It's an important note to note that lie detector tests do not have any scientific validity in the first place. The National Research Council's sweeping 2003 report on the matter stated, almost a century of research in scientific psychology and physiology provides little basis for the expectation that a polygraph test could have an extremely high accuracy. There have been more recent Department of Homeland Security-funded efforts to develop tools for lie detection, but nothing has panned out. And even the test performed by Edwards is not even a true lie detector test. Instead, it appears to be some sort of effort to discern truthfulness and intent from audio of the astronauts speaking. There's just no reason to believe this company has the ability to discern truth from audio recordings. While bioacoustics is a real area of scientific inquiry, it simply doesn't answer questions like, is this person lying? Instead, it answers questions about what sounds animals make, how they make them, and when they make them. The Institute of Bioacoustic Biology appears to be a for-profit company selling pseudoscientific cures for various health issues. The company has never been published in Bioacoustics, the only international peer-reviewed journal on the subject, and sources none of its scientific claims in actual science publications. In a response on the NASA website, Elgin said that he saw one of four panels separated from the SIVB heading out in the same trajectory towards the moon, but on a slightly different course. That discussion was edited out, and the rest was taken out of context in the 2006 documentary. The quote showed him as saying, There was something out there, close enough to be observed. Now obviously, the three of us weren't going to blurt out, Hey Houston, we've got something moving alongside of us, we don't know what it is, you know? We weren't about to do that, because we knew that those transmissions would be heard by all sorts of people, and somebody might have demanded we turn back because of aliens or whatever the reason is. Documentaries have been made and books have been written about promoting the idea that this was an alien encounter and that the episode involved a cover-up by NASA and that the astronauts did not know what they saw. But in fact, the period of uncertainty was quite brief, 
the astronauts in ground control were soon able to identify the object, a pane covering the lunar module which imparted during the separation stage with angular momentum. This means the panel continued along the same trajectory as the lunar module, containing the crew, the entire trip to the moon, as it rotated and blinked like a light as the sun reflected off of it. And about the NASA cover-up, it's more likely that little official recognition was made because it wasn't really a relevant part of the mission. the first track off a remix compilation called Disintegrated Stem Cells from the Disintegration State label. Friend of the label, Will Dirks, also performs as Mischievous Wisdom, provided a range of audio material which was then remixed by a number of artists for the release. That track, called Cat is Cat, is remixed by Colin Mawson. The album was a highly collaborative effort and produced and released in support of the 2018 Cassette Store Day. You can buy this and many other albums from the label over at disintegrationstate.bandcamp.com Wrapping up the show, we've got Night Vision. The first week of April will be celebrated around the globe as International Dark Sky Week. Created in 2003 by high school student Jennifer Barlow, International Dark Sky Week has grown to become a worldwide event and a key component of Global Astronomy Month. Astronomies Without Borders explained on their website. The goals of IDSW are to appreciate the beauty of the night sky and to raise awareness of how poor quality lighting creates light pollution. Light pollution has become a growing issue in recent decades, making it difficult for millions of people to see celestial objects, such as dim stars or the Milky Way from their neighborhood. According to the International Dark Sky Association, 99% of the population in the United States and Europe live under light polluted skies. Darksky.org has a ton of information about this and all of the organization's efforts and how you can find the best viewing locations in your area. They encourage people to get together with their friends and family and go outside at night. So many people don't take the opportunity to experience the nighttime at all. Look up, look around, go explore, find a dark location far away from streetlights and give it a visit. They also provide details on how to help spread the word about light pollution and the importance of dark skies. Talk with friends, families, neighbors, your homeowners association, or the government about why protecting our night environment is so crucial. The site has resources on how to become a citizen scientist and collect data about the night sky in your area for Globe at Night Project over at www.globeatnight.org. I myself will be volunteering at an evening of astronomy and space-related exploration at Yuri's Night Portsmouth on Wednesday, April 10th from 6 to 10 p.m. Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Yuri's Night Portsmouth is part of the international, social, educational, and artistic celebration of humanity's first steps into the final frontier. 
is named for the first human to launch in space, Yuri Gagarin, who flew the Vostok 1 spacecraft on April 12, 1961. This will be an evening of fun and exploration featuring real astrophysicists, rocket scientists, and astronomers. On tap for the evening are special speakers talking about the future of space, videos featuring current and future missions, astrophotography and space exhibit, and also outdoor telescope viewing of the night sky with me and fellow members of the New Hampshire Astronomical Society. And looking up into the sky, shortly before sunrise on the 15th, you'll be able to see Venus and Mercury just above the horizon. Venus will be brighter than the two planets and will appear slightly above and to the right of Mercury. This is one of the few opportunities to see Mercury as it's often too close to the sun to spot. Neptune will be sitting in the eastern sky near Venus and Mercury. However, a telescope is required to see this planet as it is too dim to see with the unaided eye. Although April 15th will be one of the best mornings to see the planet, they will be visible in the eastern horizon on the days leading up to and immediately following this date, weather permitting. April 22nd is known as Earth Day, but it's also the peak of the Lyrid meteor shower, the first major meteor shower since January. The Lyrids will be the strongest shower since the quadrants in January and put on a show for about three nights surrounding that peak night. The radiant point of this shower will be located near Lyra, the constellation for which it's named, but meteors will be visible in all part of the sky. This year, the peak night is expected to be Monday, April 22nd into the early morning of Tuesday, the 23rd. Typically, onlookers observe around 20 meteors per hour. However, this year, it might be slightly lower due to light from the nearby full moon. This natural sort of light pollution will also make it difficult to see the dimmer meteors. Folks that miss the Lyrids won't have to wait long, as the Eta Aquarids meteor shower will peak two weeks later in early May. Well, this wraps up this month's episode of Galaxy Rise. Thanks for joining me. Thanks to all the musicians and labels and science communicators who've helped make the show what it is. Galaxy Rise is a production of Star Stuff Studios is hosted by me, Dustin Ruoff. Let me know what you think by emailing hellogalaxyrise at gmail.com. Hit me up on Twitter at rise underscore galaxy. Search up Hello Galaxy Rise on Facebook and YouTube or visit www.galaxyrise.com. Till next month, clear skies.